One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Today's episode of Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Boxed Water. Summer is just about here, which means Barbie is soon in theaters. Che Diaz is terrorizing Los Angeles, and rising temperatures mean that you are likely dehydrated. Fear not. Boxed Water is here to provide you with the necessary hydration without the guilt of single-use bottles and cans. Reusable bottles are clearly the best option for our planet, but there are situations where their use is not possible or practical. Boxed Water offers the perfect solution in the form of a 92% plant-based package. Stay hydrated all summer long and beyond, and don't forget to check out their delicious flavors, including their limited-time watermelon flavor. Head to BoxedWaterIsBetter.com to find a location near you or to purchase online. That's BoxedWaterIsBetter.com. Why? Because it's better. Boxed Water. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Okay, a little inside baseball here. We are doing a take two because I am working with like a slowly dying Mac computer. And finally... I was like, I'm going to the genius bar today. Like, this has to be solved. It's impacting my mental health. So, so. Truly. Take two. <laughs> they say it gets better, but it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And it's getting worse during Pride Month of all seasons. I have also <laughs> not been inside an Apple store in many, many years. So I am curious to report back on, like, the state of affairs at an Apple store. Because it was a big part of like my 20 something existence. And then I just feel like everything became solvable like online. Anywho, I am Evan Ross Katz back again with Shut Up Evan. I'm in good spirits because I am on a computer that I stole from one of my previous employers. Are you allowed to say that on the record? This is not theft in the sense of like, I did not remove it from the premises. I was sent it because it was a work from home scenario and then i just didn't return it and it was never asked back so okay so it's theft by omission yeah which i think is a lower grade theft neither here nor there but i am evan ross katz this is shut up evan i'm joined once again by my friend and co-host sean ross sean hello hello how are you evan Oh, what a question. On the whole, I would say I'm doing so well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's still Pride Month. It's still going on. It's an entire month long. We get a whole month and we're literally recording this at the midway point of Pride. So we're sort of like, if, you know, Pride is a mountain, we've reached the top and it all goes downhill from there. (laughs) It truly does. (laughs) 
That's exactly what I was going to say. Hopefully, you know, some good news awaits us by way mm-hmm. of like queer rights. Who's who, who's to say? Maybe there's some bill that's going to be passed in the next two plus weeks that's going to, you know, reinvigorate our community and make us feel safe in the country we call home. Uh, stay tuned on that. I'm not going to hold my breath, but uh, I'm an eternal optimist, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't call your country home, but yeah. I feel for you. Oh, right. How are queer rights in Canada? They're okay. We have this like really loser faction of the country that like kind of wants to be the far right that is America. So it's sort of like masquerading as that, but I just Mm -hmm. don't think it's going to gain any steam. Knock on wood. (laughs) I don't like that concern. It's not like amazing, but it's not as dire of a situation, I feel. That's my take on it. Fair enough. Should we pivot and become a politics podcast? Nope. Oh, okay. (laughs) I do want to mention, though, uh, not politically related. Actually, I'll, I'll tie this into politics because the one Sex and the City episode, or one of the few that you'd actually seen before we recorded our last episode, involved Carrie in a brief relationship with a politician. And this is my transition to say, I am in possession of the first seven episodes. Seven children. Seven children. Seven children, seven dwarfs. I am in possession of all seven, ep- not all seven, seven of the 11 episodes of And Just Like That season two. I haven't hit play yet because like one of the big things for those that don't know when you get these screeners obviously there's an embargo around when you can talk about them but you also like I even got an email last night from someone just being like um you know we know you have the screeners but please hold any reactions at all um I was like do you want me to take down my post saying that I have them and they're like no that's fine but um I'm just sort of like ringing but I'm nervous to watch it because I won't be able to talk about it with anyone, and I'm not the kind of person that like spoils things for other people. Um, actually, some people would say I do with my white lotus memes and my occasional drag race content. But uh, so I, I'm like nervous to watch it because I feel like it's going to be a very siloed experience for some time. Um, yeah. But but I, but I also need to watch it because I'm submitting a story uh, for British Vogue that I'm doing about the series, and I want to at least watch the first episode. But like my head is ringing. Like I don't know. Just there's the, all of the. You know, Carrie's back. She's back. She's back, back, back. Back to what? I don't know, but we're going to find out. Because I'm going to be watching it fresh. I'm going to be watching season two of And Just Like That with you on our Survivor podcast, Drop Your Buffs. Haven't seen And Just Like That one. I've seen the first two episodes of Sex and the City plus a handful of random episodes. So what a journey that's going to be. I mean, I feel like in many senses, you are extremely qualified to talk about And Just Like That. Because I feel like with Sex and the City, and I'm counting myself among the people I'm about to to identify, we're such a super fan fan base that mm-hmm. I think it's exciting this late in the journey, 25 years into like the IP existence, to welcome in new fans. Now, I'm identifying you as a fan. I don't know if that's fair to say <laughs> because you've been forced into watching this. Um so that'll be a question. We'll circle back on that once we finish the season with the question of, Sean, are you a fan of And Just Like That? Yeah, it's, it's totally possible. Hey, I had this weird job once where I was uh, basically like subtitling television shows. And I was thrown into all these shows like late in their in their runs. And one of those shows was Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Mm. Nobody watched it. But... I was thrown in season two and I was like, this show sucks. And I'm working away at it. And I was like, I hate this job. I never want to watch this show again. And suddenly I got so invested in the show that I was like spending my outside of work hours rewatching 
catching up to where I was. I remember working on the finale. I gasped in the office. Like, it's possible. It got canceled after that, but... (laughs) (laughs) But it is true. You can sometimes find your way into a series when you do pick up. And in your case, you looked back. But, like, I watched Succession season four. That was, like, where I began Succession uh, with the death of the dad. (gasps) Whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm famously just starting Succession. I just Did finished I just season spoil it one. Let's <laughs> move Whatever. right along. Oh my! Oh my God! Anyway, any- <laughs> I'm not even a hundred percent sure what you just said. So okay, great. We'll move on. But it's funny because it's like there's just like t- to my understanding, like one major spoiler from Succession that like, exists. Uh, I guess, no, I guess like the series finale is there's a spoiler there. So I'll, I'll refrain from, from anything else Succession related, but I, I, I am excited about the journey you are about to go on. Now, uh, from one HBO series, I was going to say to another, but like, is Max, are, is it HBO? Yeah, sure it counts. Okay, fair enough. So we decided that we are going to talk today about the Idol, um, which is the new uh, HBO series that premiered. I watched the first two episodes as they came out. When we're recording this, two episodes have come out. Um, by the time you're listening to this, the third episode will have dropped. There are five total. Um, I had watched them as they aired just because I like to sort of, you know, be in on the cultural conversation. But you just watched them. Uh, you mainlined them. Last night. For our recording today. <laughs> Before we get into the idol, though, I do want to set up a conversation with a recent quote that our beloved Jennifer Coolidge gave uh, during a recent panel talk that she did in Sydney. She's she's there right now. It's it's a, it's called Vivid Sydney, uh, where she's at. Her and Mike White are there. She sent me videos from her hotel room, by the way, and they are they are treating her as she should be treated. So she said, "quote I think one of the best things to cure self doubt is just to go to really bad stuff." I'm talking about plays you hear about that are terrible, go to them. There are shows on television that are terrible, watch them. I was in college and hated myself and so full of self-doubt, and I went to this terrible production of Oliver. Everyone was bad in it. And I felt like the seas had parted. I felt like I had a chance in this world. First of all, I love that quote. It's incredibly Coolidgean. Um... But I also think there's a nugget, not a nugget, there's a lot of truth there. And I want to mention that quote in the lead up to our conversation about the idol because I think it's relevant. A hundred percent. And I would say that I would rather talk about a show that is not great than a show that is great. Granted, I I love talking about White Lotus, but I feel like there's so much more to dig into when... And, and it's not just to like tear something down, but there's really stuff to talk about. Yes, there and there is much to talk about in this show. I want to start off by sort of setting up the show for people that don't know about it. So The Idol was first announced in June 2021. The headline read, The Weekend to star in, co-write, cult series in the works at HBO with Euphoria creator. In that story, it was revealed that the series would follow a female pop singer who starts a romance with an enigmatic L.A. club owner who is the leader of a secret cult. This was four months after The weekend had uh, headlined the halftime show at the Super Bowl, and Levinson was riding high from his series Euphoria, which was nominated for Outstanding Drama Series and won Best Actress for Zendaya at the Emmy Awards the previous year. 
Principal photography began in November 2021 with Lily Rose Depp, the daughter of Johnny Depp, signing on as Jocelyn, the aforementioned female pop singer. On April 25th, Variety reported that Amy Simetz, who was signed on as the director and as an executive producer, had left the project amid its creative overhaul with roughly 80% of the series already filmed. HBO released a statement following her exit saying, quote, the Idol's creative team continues to build, refine, and evolve their vision for the show, and they have aligned on a new creative direction. The production will be adjusting its cast and crew accordingly to best serve this new approach to the series. It was reported that The weekend allegedly wanted to tone down the cult aspect of the series and felt the show was leaning too much into a, quote, female perspective, according to sources. As a result, Sam Levinson took over directing duties, and the cast, as mentioned, was largely overhauled, and a number of big names and rising stars were added, including Hank Azaria, Dan Levy, Rachel Sennett, Hari Neff, Moses Sumney, etc. In March of this year, Rolling Stone ran the headline, The Idol, How HBO's Next Euphoria Became Twisted Torture Porn. In that story, 13 crew members described how Levinson's reworks focused on a degrading love story with a heavier emphasis on sexual content and nudity as amounting to, quote, sexual torture porn and calling it, quote, like a rape fantasy. 14 months later, just last month, The Idol premiered out of competition at the 76th annual Cannes Film Festival, with the series receiving a five-minute standing ovation following the screening of its first two episodes. Critics, both professional and those with a Twitter login, were less than dazzled. A running gag online became watching as the show's Rotten Tomatoes rating continued to plummet as more reviews came in. Currently, and I imagine this will continue to fluctuate, the series holds a rating of 26% based on 61 critic reviews with an average rating of 4.75 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. As of this recording, as I mentioned, two of the episodes have aired. There are five left to come. By the time you're listening to this, that third one will have dropped. So our conversation consists of us seeing roughly 40% of the series. Actually, not roughly. Exactly. 40% of the series, 60% out by the time this airs. So that is, in an oversized nutshell, The Idol. Sean, as I mentioned, you had not seen The Idol prior to last night, um, but I'm curious what you had heard about The Idol. I mean, obviously, it's been a long and deeply reported two-year journey. Yeah, I was actually quite excited about it because I liked the concept. I do love the concept of a story about a pop star, though they almost never live up to my expectations or what I hope for them to be. Um, and I was excited about uh, sort of like having a new euphoria to watch. I even thought the trailer was really great. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I've watched the show now. And I have to say, we need to put an end to Can's standing ovations. Oh my God. Couldn't agree more. Until we can figure out what the hell is going on. It doesn't give us any metric to which to gauge the film itself because you have instances like this one in which you would read a headline and think, wow, five minutes standing ovation, my God. <laughs> but then you see the material and you're like, well, wait a minute, this makes me want to interview everyone in the audience <laughs> and get their perspective. And also, like, I could watch a documentary about that five minutes. Yeah, they probably just wanted to stretch their legs. Right, they're like, I gotta get up, because these are long episodes. It's not and just like that, but it, they're less than an hour. They meander. <laughs> they are slow. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I feel like 
we've sort of uh, given this meaning, ascribed a meaning to these long-standing ovations when it's my understanding, uh -huh. and I can't say I've been to any of these film festivals, but I think it's pretty par for the course. If something is going to premiere, people are going to stand up and applaud because they are, you know, recognizing the work that went into making these things that they are now seeing. And it's sort of a respect thing because it's so ubiquitous. It doesn't hold sort of any meaning. Yeah. Now, you watch these first two episodes. I guess let's start with like just like top level What'd you think? Look, it wasn't terrible. It's not terrible. But it wasn't great. I have to say, I think that the acting all around is rough uh, from from everybody involved. Except, you know, there, there were nuggets of really strong moments. And in particular, in episode two, where she's filming this music video that she doesn't give a shit about. She hates the song. She hates the routine. The video looks trashy. And yet she becomes hyper fixated on getting the take right. And it sort of leads to this like mini breakdown where she's calling out for her mom who had, or who we learned had died a year previous. I was riveted to that scene. And it takes a lot to rivet me to a TV show that I'm not all that interested in. And like that was, I put down my phone, I was watching that entire sequence. So in that case, like I thought that Lily Rose Depp did great. Like, I, I really found that compelling acting. Otherwise, I've got to say, it's like, I, I'm just not believing the world they're creating. I feel that. I think it's a hard show to talk about. When we talk about shows like White Lotus that have such intense focus, I find it really easy to break them down. And with this show, I have a harder time understanding, like, the degree to which something is being presented with irony because I recognize that the people that made the show are intelligent people. And so I can understand the fact that sometimes they're doing a certain thing, having a character act a certain way in service of making the audience feel a certain way. But sometimes I'm not sure like how much to trust that like what they're putting down is what I'm picking up and their awareness of like what I'm going to pick up. I try to give them the benefit of the doubt in a lot of situations, but sometimes giving them the benefit of the doubt is almost like, worse for them <laughs> because I'm like, oh, you tried to do this. So, but but I, I do want to start like by talking about like the conceit of the show because you mentioned um, we, 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 like especially queer people, like we love the framework of like telling the story of the pop star. Not to put you on the spot, but like when you think of like great instances of this, like instances in which it's done in its top form, what comes to mind for you? Watching this, I had this epiphany, which was that I think that the idea of pop stardom is far more interesting to us than the reality of pop stardom. And I'm not saying that this show is trying to depict the reality of pop stardom. I think at some point it was trying to do that. And maybe through all of these sort of reworks that it went through, it's become something that's a little bit more confusing and has this like cult aspect associated with it, which is now like quite far removed from reality. But... I feel like some of these things, like you have this whole opening sequence where 
uh, she Jocelyn, yeah. which is a terrible name for a pop star. No offense to Jocelyn's out there, but it's just a, doesn't have that pop like a Britney does. It's not Shakira. <laughs> it's not Madonna. You know, it's not Cher. But <laughs> but Jocelyn is doing this photo shoot, and she's wanting to show her breasts, but there is a clause in her contract that says that she can't, and so it's this argument going on behind the scenes. That sort of thing is incredible tabloid fodder, and we would love to gossip about that. But it's not that interesting to watch in a fictionalized show. And so I think it's actually really hard because then I, I think about A Star is Born, uh, Ali Main, one of our great pop stars in the fictional universe. And again, that film was good because it wasn't really about the pop stardom. In fact, they gloss over the entire thing where she was a singer-songwriter and suddenly like sells out and becomes a pop star. That's not even included in the movie. It just happens, and we accept that it happens. But I think that my very favorite version of this is the movie Her Smell um, with Elizabeth Moss, where she's playing sort of like a Courtney Love-esque figure who was you know, quite large in a, in a band-like hole uh, many years ago, and, and she's sort of like struggling with her identity, addiction issues, et cetera, et cetera, and try, kind of like trying to stage a comeback and having to deal with the fact that new pop, they're, new, they're not pop stars, but like new rock stars are replacing her. I think that is like perfectly, perfectly done version of this because it's not trying to dive in and show us the inner workings. It's a personal story about someone who happened to be a star. Right. And to that point, I don't think any of like the realities of what goes on behind the scenes are that shocking or that untold. It's not surprising that Mm -hmm. pop stars are asked to do these quote unquote superhuman things because they live in a, a world that is very outside the real world. So when their world doesn't seem tethered to reality, that makes sense because why would it be? But you mentioned A Star is Born and I think that's an interesting comparison because I think one crucial element that I find to be missing with the idol is a sense of why Jocelyn is famous. What do Jocelyn stands cling on to about Jocelyn? Um, Mm -hmm. I know that you'll see a lot of people online that are like standing the music that has come out because it's good. Wow. The goodness of it speaks to the reductive nature of pop at present more than it does to the quality of Jocelyn as a pop star. In the way that it's sort of like fulfilling the same purpose as why did you do that from... A Star is Born. Absolutely. I think about like Ashley O's songs from Black Mirror as like another example of like, they are bops, but are they like great pop music? Are they the kind of pop music that intuits as to like why they have this place in the pop pantheon? Not so much. So I'm trying to understand like just what Jocelyn's backstory is. And, but then like my counterpoint is it's like, there's something to be said about just like dropping into a world without a backstory. So I don't think that I'm trying to say like every story needs to present the backstory. That's not what I'm saying, but I think that there are critical details about her past outside of just her mom dying and her having this bad breakup. The key details we know about Jocelyn is she loves cigarettes. Skinny cigarettes. Skinny cigarettes, which I like. That's a nice detail. They're quite glamorous. Yeah, they really are. And especially (laughs) they have like this old Hollywood lip that they do on Jocelyn that I think just makes smoking cigarettes look better. Um, So Jocelyn loves cigarettes. She likes texting. She is not a big fan of eating lunch. 
She loves spreading her cheeks. Uh-huh. And she's a perfectionist. She's a perfectionist. And she's an artist that has that feels she's losing her integrity. Yeah. I will say though, there is that scene where Nikki, I think her name is the label head, mm-hmm. is berating her after she plays a remix uh, that the weekend did for her. And uh, and she does drop little morsels like we put out this EP with big titted bangers or something she says and so I'm like wait so is it just does she just have an EP and is it based on just an EP that she, I'm to believe that she's like the biggest pop star in the world the problem for me is that when she's doing her job uh, either dancing or well we haven't really seen her sing dancing or filming her music video but more importantly being interviewed for a magazine she has no charisma whatsoever and so it's hard for me to buy it sort of reminds me of vox lux it's hard for me to buy her as a true pop star that's why you get ali main as a great pop star that's why you get um the bodyguard right whitney houston's character as a, a as a legitimate pop star Uh, I think that it's hard for an actor to embody a pop star. It absolutely is, which is why one of my central questions around the show is it's like, why are we telling this story? Because ultimately the idea of like pop star or like powerful young woman seduced by ominous bad male figure is like a story that's been told so many times So, like, what's the spin here besides the fact that it's, like, this really popular director and this really, and this cast of really popular people? I'm not sure what this show is, like, attempting to tap into or attempting to say. To make that comparison to Sex and the City for a moment, as I'm prone to do, you know, Sex and the City was sort of saying, you know, people at that time, especially in the late 90s, have this idea that a woman of a certain age in a city like New York is supposed to find a man and and settle down, and that's supposed to be her life. And Sex and the City was sort of asking, well, what happens if I don't want that? Or what happens if I look at my friends that have that and see how unhappy they are? And that was sort of like the jumping off point. And then you got this, this great series that explored that. What is this show attempting to explore? The problem for me is I think that it's actually not about sort of stardom or Hollywood in any way. My concern is that it's becoming a cult show. It is true detective set in Hollywood, right? Like Mm -hmm. this sort of ominous cult that we're seeing going on where, I I don't even know the weekend's character name, but. Oh, uh, Tedros. (laughs) Tedros, where Tedros is like training super pop stars in like a bizarre way using like electroshock therapy and having a Jenny from Blackpink infiltrate uh, Jocelyn's world and sort of like almost take over her job because we, we see Jenny get uh, basically a record contract like Nikki sends her straight to studio to cut a track because she's such a good dancer I don't I don't quite understand the end game here and this cult isn't scary to me it's 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 almost like laughable that's the problem is it's 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 like a parody of a cult and it's like okay so we're training pop stars uh 
what's the end game like you say it's like i i i see the i see the mystery here you're laying the breadcrumbs right where i can see them but do i don't really care to follow the trail you know i just watched recently that that hillsong documentary yeah i mean along with pop star stories the the cult stories are something that like this is very trodden territory so are what are we adding to the conversation here because I remember there was a time, I especially remember when I first watched Going Clear, where I didn't know about cults. And I was like, my mind was just blown by the scale with which these things can grow and the recruitment process and all of that. Now that I know that, and I think the general public has a greater understanding of the ubiquity of cults, e- even modern day cults and how they function. What is this attempting to add to that? And like, also, I'd love a sense of like, we're we're 40% in at this juncture. We don't know what this cult is doing. Like, as you mentioned, yeah, are they, is this a, 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 a camp for pop star girls? Like, I, I'm not so sure. What's the, what, what are we all leading up to here? Yeah, and my big concern is that some of the clues they've dropped have been so obvious that gonna say. they're going to be exactly that, where we had uh, a mention of Sharon Tate in the first episode, mm-hmm. uh, we had a mention of dying in the second episode. Is is this whole story just going to end with this cult killing Jocelyn in some way? But also, like, to that end, it's like, you look at him, and, like, even the way he looks at her, and it's like, yep, he looks like a cult leader. <laughs> like, he's given her those cult leader eyes. I want him to almost act more normal uh-huh. so that it's more shocking that he would be that. But, like, everything about him says cult leader. It's like a cartoon character in a trench coat and a hat. Yeah, and I do think we have to pause here to say that, like, The weekend is not an actor. Mm-mm. And that is evidenced throughout this series. No, um, and, and and so much of the premise of this show, it seems like where it's going uh, with this cult basically infiltrating Jocelyn's life and, like, moving into her home after they met, like, a week ago, if that... Um, that that, uh, it hinges on her being so enamored with him that she is absolutely love drunk and yet they have no chemistry whatsoever and I'm sorry but that sex scene in episode two like that was shocking to watch for all the wrong reasons we need to play a clip from it right here because it's important that people hear this open your lips yeah Yes. Oh, choke on it. Yeah, choke on it. Fucking stretch that tiny little pussy. And I would say podcast is an audio medium, but there really isn't much to see. It's mostly, it's an oral. (laughs) It's both an oral and an oral experience. Um, let's, Let's talk a little bit about this supporting cast for a moment. I think it's really interesting to note that there are five main cast members on this show. So you have Abel, The Weeknd, as Tedros. You have Lily Rose Depp as Jocelyn. You have Jane Addams as Nikki, the record label executive that you'd mentioned. You have Troy Sivan as Xander, Jocelyn's creative director. And then you have Susanna Sun as Chloe who's one of the followers of Tedros. She was the girl who was ostensibly, I think, masturbating mm-hmm. in the second episode while secretly watching Tedros and Jocelyn Buck. And I think she was she was playing the piano naked. She was playing the piano naked. She was also in the pool naked. She was good. 
Yeah, but if you were to choose the fifth cast member, that's not who I would have identified. I would have thought maybe Hank Azaria or, you know, there's just there are other options in terms of people that have occupied the screen longer. And then you get like Jenny, Ruby Jane recurring, Rachel Sennett recurring, Hari Neff recurring, Moses Sumney recurring, Devine Joy Randolph recurring, Dan Levy recurring, Eli Roth, who we have not yet met, he is recurring, Hank Azaria recurring. I'm just curious about the breakdown here. Um, if anyone feels like they should be main cast, it would be Rachel Sennett. Rachel Sennett. And by the way, this show is nothing without her. It needs Rachel Sennett. She is the heart and soul of this show. Yeah, she's every inch a star. But but I, I guess one thing that I am perplexed by is, so you, as I said, you have Troy Sivan as her creative director. You have Jane Addams as the record label executive. Then you have Devine Joy Randolph as Jocelyn's co-manager, Hank Azaria as the other co-manager, Dan Levy as her publicist. And these are all very real positions that exist in the world of pop, pop stardom. But for the sake of a television series it all sort of just reads as like, they all feel like the same character in different bodies in some form or another. I guess you could argue like Jane Adams is like her character. Nikki is like the one outlier there in that she's like willing to be direct and actually tell Jocelyn the truth. But I'm just curious, like thinking about like Troy Savon Xander, for instance, if you were to be like, I watched actually, he did an interview where he was like describing Xander. And I was like, I've always wondered like what it's like to be an actor who has like a very like menial role in something and then being asked to like discuss the character and, and how like challenging that must be. And this was an example of that. <laughs> like what is Xander's function on this show? Do you think that's going to like lead to something? No, absolutely not. It's like there's three different shows going on here right. where you have the cult, you have Jocelyn's career, and then you have the people who are managing Jocelyn. And the people manage like, and they all feel like they're written by different people. Like, yes. these feel like three independent things that they've tried to weave together. Well, it very well and might have been. <laughs> I feel like the scenes that focus on the management team, they have a lot of potential. They're not getting there in this format. But I see a Veep-style show about a pop star management team. Right. And dealing with crisis. But you need to have the writers of Veep on that. You start to get that flavor with the Rachel Sennett character. Yeah. Where she's, like, reacting to Jocelyn's horrid remix of the song. Yeah. It's not good, <laughs> but she's giving the, the right degree of believability in the moment where you can understand that, you know, she's being her genuine self. The other thing about this show is, like Euphoria, it has this huge emphasis on maximalism in every sense. And I'm wondering if you think that stylistic choice benefits the show. Because I keep thinking that, like, this is a show that could be made on one-tenth of the budget. There's nothing about this show on the surface that requires the just grandiosity of this show in its scope and the lushness of the production, the filmmaking style, the colors, the costumes, all of these details, are they necessary? I think they're 100% necessary. I, I sound like I'm saying this show is absolute shit. It's not. I actually, like, I watched both episodes and I, you know, took them in. I wasn't distracted the whole time. Um, but I think if this show had a scaled back budget and a scaled back look there wouldn't be a whole lot to grab onto. Hmm. 
I actually think the style of the show was like very enticing and it wasn't exactly euphoria. I was expecting euphoria and we didn't get euphoria, which was nice. I'm happy for that. Uh, But I do think that it was really important to have that. I've loved that scene of rehearsing the uh, dance routine in the backyard. Like that was beautifully shot. Um, I loved everything. Like I said, uh, filming the music video, uh, the club scenes. Like I just feel like everything was like quite well artistically directed. Yeah. So to close out, I do just want to like zero in on sort of like the story outside of the story, which I feel like has very much overtaken people's perceptions of this show. And and I understand why. I mean, like 80% of the original show that was filmed is not being seen. Uh, There are cast members that were announced as part of the show (laughs) that do not appear in the show. There was a female showrunner who left the show that deep into production, um, and we don't know why. I mean, we, we have the statement as to why, but we don't know why. But I'm wondering how the show might have been received differently had we not had sort of like the making of the show so highly publicized. I kind of don't think it matters, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I think that if the show came out and it was great and it was five stars every episode, we would be like, great, they did amazing. Sometimes that works. Like there are cases where you hear those stories and you end up with a great product i feel like more often than not you hear those stories and you end up with a weird messy product and i think that's what we got here like it's very it reminds me of uh, that xavier dolan movie john f donovan where they cut jessica chastain's entire character and you heard so much about how it was like a five-hour film they had to pair it back pair it back pair it back and and he had been working on this for so long he's a great director he's a great writer it comes out and it's unwatchable. Yeah, and you're left to wonder, is there a version of this? That's good, yeah. Where is that footage? Is it locked in some vault beneath the Max offices? Release the Jessica Chastain yes, footage. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm curious to see where the show will go. I'll stick with it. It's not a show I feel compelled to weigh in on, you know, by way of the cultural conversation, like online and everything. I'm glad we're able to talk about it today. I think it's like a certainly a show worthy of dissection. But a lot of the takes that I'm seeing sort of aren't intriguing me in any way. I'm seeing a lot of takes from people that are like, I actually like the idol with the emphasis being on actually as though like it's (laughs) somehow subversive to like this piece of like very Uh mainstream pop culture. But more than anything, I would say like, I am glad that so many of my faves who appear on this show from Hari Neff to Rachel Sennett to Moses Sumney to Divine Joy Randolph, so many of these people who I love are getting a really, really big platform to show off their talents that hopefully can lead to more opportunities for them. It's like, I think you want shows like this on your resume. Like, I think these are Mm -hmm. big shows. They're insanely zeitgeisty. There are so many things, especially in this age of just mass content creation that sort of are an on-off switch and you never hear about them again. I mean, half the time, like, you know that Netflix show, The Ranch? (laughs) No. Okay, it's like some Ashton Kutcher show that ran for years. And I was like, what the fuck? So this is one show that like in just two episodes and with three more to come is a major cultural conversation, you know, lightning rod, boiler. Uh, what's, I was going to say boilerplate. That's not the thing. 
Uh, if it's no. on a boiler, though, it's hot. <laughs> it's boiling. It's boiling. It's a rolling boil. <laughs> but, like, this is something that people are talking about, which I think is ultimately something to be a part of in the same vein of and and just like that, right? I mean, like, there are so many uh, shows that don't – so many. I would say the majority of shows that don't get to that level. So I will stick with it. I, go, I was going to ask you that. I mean, like, obviously, we're done talking about The Idol. Are you going to watch episodes three, four, and five? I'm considering it just to see more Moses Sumney. Yeah, Moses Sumney is hot. Who is the hottest person I've ever seen in my life. He's so hot. Also, you should check out his music. It's really good. I will. And check out uh, his live performances. He's a really, really great live performer. Um, So that is our thoughts on The Idol. Would obviously love to hear what other people are thinking about it. Are you consuming it? Are you enjoying it? Are you hate watching it? Are you... I want to say, though, I think hate watch culture is sort of out. I think we need to sort of, like, evolve that term. Um... Because I think there's a kind of thing that's like exactly how I am with the idol, where it's like, I don't hate the idol, but I'm not watching it because I'm enjoying it. I'm watching it because... Like as an anthropological experiment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which I feel like I do often with a lot of things. With Survivor, a perfect and I'm like sort of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, so those are our thoughts on the idol, but I'm really excited to uh, turn things over now to one of like my absolute beacons of uh, television creation. He's written on shows from Sybil to Murphy Brown. Uh, He created The Comeback, which I would put in the pantheon of best television series of all time. Um, But he is probably best known for being a writer, director, and the showrunner of Sex and the City and its sequel series, And Just Like That. When we come back, we are joined by the lovely talented and quite frankly i use the word a lot but he qualifies i i i I was gonna say ironic iconic michael patrick king shut up evan hello blondie you accept this as real blonde right (laughs) i do i just thought you stepped off a beach in norway it's so blonde. <laughs> Michael, it's really, truly an honor. Very few people I'd be more excited to chat with than you as both a fan of And Just Like That and Sex and the City, but also remarkably so, the comeback, which I feel like is a formative part of my sense of humor. Great, because you're one of the few people who got it early. You know what I mean? The The reality was my, my anecdote about the comeback, it was like... Um, the early Christians, the first season, there was like a group of people in a cave who really got the message and everybody else was like, what is this? I have my um, VHS copies of season one. I mean, that's how I was devoted from the outset. I was one of those people who, as a follower of yours at the time and then of Lisa's, I was like, oh, what's this new exciting show? And so it's funny how it's sort of over the years, I think it picks up more and more fans, as I'm sure you know. And as an early adopter of the show, I'm always sort of like been there, done that, like in the best way possible. You know, the interesting thing is the East Coast, New York City was very ahead of the curve on the comeback. L.A. was a little bit more dragging their feet. New York was like, yeah, television's awful. And L.A. was like, I don't know. Is television awful? That's what we do for a living. New York was like, we get it. Speaking of New York, you know, I was biking through New York the other day and sort of seeing. Come on, shut up, Evan. You were not biking (laughs) through anyone. No, I really was. I really was. I was biking through New York. One of my first bike rides, I went from downtown Brooklyn to uh, Greenpoint, which is quite a bike ride. And I'm watching all these buildings going up and I'm just like, 
you know, taking in all of the ways in which the city has changed. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to be talking to Michael Patrick King soon. And like, you know, he is New York in so many ways. I'm wondering, what do you make of 2023 in New York City? It's very thin. The buildings are very thin. They're very Jenga. It's a new Jenga skyline. It could fall over at any point when I look at it. I've had a couple of New Yorks. Uh, and they're very much alive with me. My first New York was when I came here when I was 20, 20 to 38, and had no money and no real uh, validation. So that was a whole other New York. And then when I did Sex in the City, it was a different New York. And then when we came back to do the first movie, it was the most exalted version of New York. But I was on the same sidewalks. I could feel like my other self walking at the same time as my realized self was walking. So New York has many facets to it for me. Currently, it's the most gorgeous May I've ever seen. I mean, every single day I'm walking everywhere because I'm editing and it is like blissful how many different streets you can discover still after so many years. I mean, Sex and the City is 25 years old this June. This month is their 25th anniversary. And just that section of New York alone, walking down the street, oh, we filmed there when that was this. We filmed there when that was this. This is where Carrie crossed the street with the birthday cake and we pretended that the street was being retarded. Everything in... in um, Sex in the City is really based on those of us who walked the streets at that time and made up stories. So right now, New York is very much in bloom. I think, and just like that season two, has the most, almost the most New York any one season has ever had of the entire IP. Of our Marvel Universe, this season has the most restaurants and the most diverse, dispersed parts of the city than we've ever done in one season. A collective, we've done a lot, but in one season, and just like that season two, is very New York. Is there a store or just a monument from the Sex and the City era of filming in New York that's no longer there that you particularly miss? Sure, Barney's. <laughs> Guess that comes to mind. Where does Carrie shop? Like Barney's. I mean, Barney's was a great touchstone as a comedy joke. And it was also a mecca for style. And it was, you could say, I'm going to Barney's and it would mean something. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, when we did season one of In Just Like That, one of the things Sarah Jessica placed very specifically on the set was a little black Barney's shopping bag on the bedstand next to her bed when she was morning big. And then we moved it to the bookshelf in the old apartment and it has brightly colored paper flowers in it, but it's a very little Barney's like, I guess if you bought a jewelry piece, it would be in this bag, but she was very specific that that Barney's be referenced. Yeah, Barney's was a big deal. How fitting then that the season one premiere party was held in the old space. I feel like that was a very nice bookend. That was thrilling. It was like the Haunted Mansion. You know, <laughs> it <was> like they <laughs> brought it back to life for us. All of a sudden, everything was pink and there was candy and there was fun. I heard you were there. Sarah Jessica told me you were there last night. Yes, it was quite a fun. They had a uh, French fries on parasols and it was just so ornate and fabulous. I saw a video of myself at that party. And I don't want to say that I must have been releasing a lot of pressure, 
but I looked like a Pixar character, like if a spring came to life and went to a party and tried to dance. I was bouncing all over that place. I think from the release of the pressure yes. of trying to do this again and having it come off well that night. Well, not only that, but I remember the gasp in the theater because that was the first time that an audience was seeing Big's death. And so I imagine you all are holding on to this big secret throughout production. And this was the first time you were seeing this devout fan base reacting in real time to something that you knew was coming. So I imagine the release of the show being out, but particularly that big secret. Yeah, that big secret. And the other reaction that I had pertinent to that experience was when we filmed it. Because when I wrote it, it was very poetic. The last line in the scene of that first episode was um, the blue, the shower water makes the blue of her wedding shoes turn black. And I thought, oh, how poetic. And then when we filmed it, it was the opposite of poetry. It was heavy lifting. And they were in that shower and Chris weighed whatever he weighed and Carrie turned Sarah Jessica to pick him up. And the minute Sarah Jessica stepped in the shower and bent down to pick him up, those Manolo wedding shoes blew off her feet. Like they just left her feet. And I went, oh, this is more real than I imagined. And it scared me. I was like, oh, this is, I just killed rom-com in this moment. And it was something that you doubled down on. And it was like, well, we have to break this in order to go forward to do something new. Absolutely. As you know, it's, it's hard to rewatch now because knowing the impact that it would have on Carrie and obviously the viewers, but it's a important scene because I think it set the tone for the fact that this was very much going to be the next chapter and that this is not going to be Sex in the City. It's going to be its own entity. And I think that scene in particular affirmed that very idea. There's just something thrilling about a death that's fictional because you get to sort of explore all the feelings that you would feel, but without any of the reality of a personal loss. So from a storytelling point of view, to, to kill someone that people aren't expecting to die was thrilling. And it also was a way of going, we broke it. Boom, I just broke it. Now what? Now let's see what this other thing can be because love it or hate it, love the death or hate the death. It certainly wasn't the same yeah which would have been the death of the series if it had been the same you know i i feel like there's a lot of parallels at least i see between and just like that slash sex in the city and the comeback and when we talk about this moment i can't help but think about the season two finale of the comeback and sort of that breaking of the fourth wall and it's very michael patrick kingian if you will to sort of have this moment uh similar in both of these series of just saying like you think you know the rubric or like the template of this show and because you think you know it i'm gonna crack it wide open the only thing to do is to keep going forward and not repeat as a series writer or shaper or showrunner as long as you keep going forward whether they accept it or not you're not dead in the water you're not repeating and it, there is a moment where a thought it comes into your head like the moment you're talking about in the comeback where valerie leaves the entire format behind the entire series, the first season, and then nine years later, the second season was sewed into the fabric that she is never off camera. And the most important thing in her world 
is how she's coming across on camera to the world. So Lisa and I were in a, you know, we're writing it and we were talking about the fact that her hairdresser, Mickey, was sick. And that something so big would have to pull her focus away from herself. It would have to be somebody that she loved so much. And all of a sudden, I was like, I don't see reality cameras at that bed, bedside, because that's a real thing. It's real life. And I just heard it in my mind. She leaves the cameras behind. And I got, I looked at Lisa and she said, what? I said, she doesn't take the cameras. And we risk. And she went, oh my God, if it works, it's amazing. And if it doesn't work, we ruin the show. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a big risk. No big deal. <laughs> What's more thrilling as somebody who writes or creates stuff than to risk something so big that you could ruin it? But at least it's not duplicating. My thing is like paint yourself into a corner and then rather than go back over the wet paint, go up the wall. Somehow find a way to go up the wall. And as long as you're still tethered to reality, there's gravity in the story, like gravitational pull, like things happen in life. The audience may go with you. If you depart earth and start floating around in nonsensical stories, just because you ran out of space, the audience won't go with you, I don't think. Did you watch the recent Amazon freebie series, Jury Duty? No. So basically there's this big reveal in episode eight where the, the main character finds out that all of the other characters are in fact actors. And there was a big reaction to it online. And I couldn't help but think of that series slash or season question mark finale of the comeback and thinking, wow, I've seen this before. I've seen an entire world break down and have to sort of be reconstructed in real time because I really think in so many ways, the comeback was the blueprint for so much of what we're seeing on television and in media today. But definitely was the blueprint, I'm gonna say for a female character who was destroying herself. Hmm. I mean, this is before the Real Housewives of anything existed. And when Lisa and I pitched the series, we knew what, we created the poster. We pitched that poster, Valerie standing in a meat grinder in a blue gown and the, the gown is shredding. And basically that's the premise of the show. She's grinding herself up to make entertainment. And that was not on the landscape. And I think that's what threw people so much because uh, Carrie Bradshaw had deep feelings and dysfunctions and she had a massive affair and she did things that heroines weren't allowed to do on television, like be good and bad, mm. be your friend and the other woman. But she looked good doing it. And that, and there was, there was a lot of uh, sparkle around Carrie in her darkness. There was always a shoe or a bag or some thing that the audience could go but look what she's wearing and with valerie it was just bone on bone pain it was just naked need and lisa never commented she has the facility as an actor to be something but not tell you with a wink subtextually it's going to be okay lisa never commented she just 
was in it. And I don't think people knew what to do with that because they didn't know whether it was funny or tragic or both. They really had to have their own Geiger counter or barometer or their own sense of humor because we thought Valerie was hilarious. And for the first five episodes up until Palm Springs, when she said to that guy, I will pull over and put you off on the side of the road. No one thought Valerie was going to survive, but we always thought she's hilarious. How about the quality of those Navigator cinema qualities? I swear to God, I will pull over and put you out onto the side of the road. Yeah, in the Lincoln Navigator, no less. <laughs> the Lincoln Navigator. That was, I have to say, that was before anyone was even aware of product placement. Absolutely. That was before Top Chef. All of a sudden, they're all driving to some place in London and they're in cars. Why are we seeing the front of a car if the show's about cooking? Yep. That was before it all. And the Valerie had the nerve to call it out. Referencing again that Writer's Guild talk that you did, there's a moment when Winnie Holtzman is describing the character of Valerie and she calls her the most unlikable character in the world. And you and Lisa, it's a it's a micro moment, but if you kind of zero in on you and Lisa's faces in that moment, there's a long pause that you both take because I think it's partially because of both of your love for this character, but also that, that sort of read on Valerie, in my opinion, it's to sort of miss the point of Valerie where she's not entirely unlikable. She has moments of unlikability, um, but she has sincere tender moments like we were talking about in the season two finale, where you see the real Valerie as a compassionate human being who is willing to leave her career entirely behind for someone she loves. I just love that moment because it's the two of you reacting in an authentic way as though someone's talking crap about your friend. Winnie is so hilarious because when we did that talk, there wasn't even a thought that we were going to do a season two of, of the comeback. And I just remember Winnie's sort of very crazy laugh. Like when Winnie would laugh at something, she would get this. <laughs> and it stuck in my mind so that when we did season two, I asked Winnie to play the script supervisor. Uh -huh. So after that very elongated naked scene, very elongated naked scene. I have the script supervisor lose her mind by laughing nervously. Here's here's something, you know, this the comeback was incredibly scripted within an inch of its life. There was hardly an improv. When we did the naked scene in the second season where Valerie's standing next to the two softcore porn actresses who are completely shaved, no one had seen them. And Robert Michael Morris, who plays Mickey, was standing there taking it in. And afterwards, the actor said to me, were they wearing hose? Because there was no hair. And I was like, God damn it. Why didn't you say that when we still had the cameras <laughs> up? I mean, Red, were they wearing hose? Oh my God. Mickey would never have seen that. No. On the subject of Valerie, and you know, we're talking about Sex in the City a bit, and you have these two great, you know, female characters that you've had such a hand in architecting. Have you ever imagined a world in which Carrie and Valerie exist in the same universe or link up for some reason? No, those are two IPs that do not. I mean, literally, if Carrie and Valerie ever met, they would walk by each other on the street without any awareness that the other one existed. Carrie would have no context. We have an episode coming up 
in season two where Carrie actually has a toe dip in a history of show business, having been tried to write a movie. And just seeing Carrie talk about show business for a second, you realize it is the furthest thing from her awareness. And because Valerie is not aware of anybody, but anyone that the spotlight is on, she would never even see Carrie. Yeah, She'd see her in an outfit and go, well, that's crazy. Taxi. I mean, she'd probably probably make fun of her outfit or something if a camera was on. Otherwise, she wouldn't even comment. That makes sense. Um, you know, we're talking about great female characters. And I was going back and looking at your resume. And, you know, you wrote on my talk show and Hi, Honey, I'm Home and Murphy Brown and Good Advice and Sybil. And there's a recurring theme in all of these shows, which is that they are all female-led shows and not shows that have a female lead alongside a male lead. These are female-led shows. And I'm wondering when you first realized that for you and for me and for many, women rule the roost. I have three sisters. So let's start there. I have three sisters. We're all very close in age. Having been uh, what we would then call a sissy growing up, I didn't have a lot of, uh, I guess you would say, male friends, buddies. So... For me, my sisters were my playmates. And also when I started to do stuff from a very early age, and by do stuff, I mean put on shows, I would put on shows in the backyard and I would use my sisters and the neighborhood girls to be in them. And it would always be some version of a beauty pageant or a religious epic. And I would... There was something about the female energy, whether I could get it to cooperate with me more or whether I could dress it up in my mother's uh, bridesmaids gowns that were in the attic, which is my first wardrobe department. There was something very available and creative for me about working with women. So much so that when we were filming the first movie and we were outside uh, the New York Public Library and Carrie was in the wedding gown, I was talking to her and I was moving the gown around as we were getting ready to do a shot. And I realized, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing I did when I was seven. Only instead of Eileen, Ellen, and Patty, it's Sarah, Jessica, Kristen, and Kim. It's this weird manifestation of wedding gown, pretend, and I'm in charge. So, you know, I love women. Women to me are friends. And so when I think of emotions and feelings, uh, it's just a natural extension of my own personality to pull on the women, you know. I mean, when we did Sex in the City, when it was in its height zeitgeist, there was a teacher in Oxford who taught a class in development behavior. And every person who came in had to identify as a Carrie, a Miranda, a Charlotte, or a Samantha to start the class. And then that started a whole, which are you, which are you? And what's so funny about it is Miranda was always like 7%. And I was like, what? Because 97% of the women I know that are funny and smart and sarcastic are Miranda. So I didn't understand the disconnect because I know so many Mirandas that I just think at that time in the world, people didn't identify with a Miranda. And then they all did. And then when Miranda made some 
shocking choices on in just like that season one, they all pulled away again. So it's really exciting. I, I agree. Uh, now, Max just released a video titled SATC's Most Iconic Guest Stars. Before I ask my question, though, are you yet used to calling it Max? Is that in your, your headspace yet? Sure, because I've always said HBO Max, HBO Max, HBO, HBO Max. It's like Latin. I'm, I'm just Omasa Mata, HBO Max, HBO, HBO Max. Now it's down to Max. It's 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 trimmed down. It's it's the Wachovia of it's just getting thinner. It's going to be soon mm, mm. or Axe. Let's just hope it doesn't turn to Axe. Yeah, let's keep it at mm. So Max just released a video titled SATC's Most Iconic Guest Stars. I'm wondering... Who would you, Michael Patrick King, put on that list? Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu is kind of the first person who said, I'll be me and I'll be a borderline opinionated version of me. Uh, David Duchovny, because uh, he is was fun to work with. And I was in that scene with him in the mental institution. I'm running around yelling feces behind him. <laughs> Because no other actor could get a laugh the way the writing room would laugh when I pitched it. Because they were like, "You're not. that's not going to happen. And I would say, this is how funny it could be. And then no one did. And I was running around. Um, you know, John Slattery, speaking of feces, John Slattery wanted to be peed on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, these are, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we got very lucky. Elizabeth Banks. I mean, everybody at some point moved through there, big and small. And it, it was really fun. Sarah Michelle Geller came on. And the great flaw of that episode is that when we cast Sarah Michelle and asked her to do that scene, we did not have a guest star yet to play the movie star. I'm so glad you're addressing this. So we are filming and we didn't have a name. And we were like, we were trolling LA. Who can we get? We were running up to people. Will you do it? Will you do it? We didn't have anybody. Eventually, Matthew McConaughey came on and was phenomenal, but we didn't have anybody. So I actually had to have her, Sarah Michelle, go, go. Guess who's buying your book? It's, and she goes like this. And then we looped in Matthew McConaughey. Big news. I have a star interested. Guess who? Um, Drew Barrymore. No. Guess. I'm really not good with the celebrity names. Oh, guess. Uh, that Jennifer Love something girl? Nope. Guess. I think I'm done guessing. Matthew McConaughey. I've always wondered about that. So this is uh, scratching an itch that has been gestating for years. Like, why would you ever do that unless you didn't have the name and we pretended it was secret? McConaughey was so spectacular. When he showed up, I said to the makeup people, you gotta, come on, that's ridiculous. You gotta take him down. You, it's too beautiful, it's ridiculous. They go, he's not wearing it. He doesn't have any makeup on. I was just like, oh. And then he improvised. So what you're seeing, and our show is usually by the book, what you're seeing on his side is him free range, going crazy, carry big, get down in the primordial mud. Uh, uh, man, woman. We are animals, man, woman, walking the earth. We're made of head, heart, and loins. We're talking about using them. Am I right? Well, I have, uh, well, the 
the girl said that we would probably what we would we would, uh, would talk about the columns today. Let's get down to the underbelly of these two characters. And let's figure out why they're so fucked up. And what you're actually seeing is Sarah Jessica Parker reacting to stuff she's never heard before. And it's perfect because Carrie is in that moment and Sarah Jessica's in that moment and they're both equally thrown. So he was spectacular to come on and play a crazy version of him. Yes, I also love that you did that two-parter in Los Angeles because I thought it gave us a lot of time to explore- oh, Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher playing herself. Vince Vaughn was, you couldn't get more charming than Vince Vaughn. You could not get more charming than him in that episode. You know, I can't drive by what was the standard West Hollywood now and immediately think, I mean, obviously it's sad that we lost the standard West Hollywood, but it's mostly sad that we lost the sight of- The opening doors, the cigarette puffs go back in. And you know, every time I drive by it, I think that's where Carrie had a, uh, one drag on her cigarette and they went back inside. And those LA episodes were greatly maligned. Really? Yeah, yeah. People were like, eh. They're like, eh. And it's because we left New York. We once again did something that was not of the norm and when you look at those episodes by themselves, they're pretty spectacular in terms of a stunt. They're some of my favorites. And I, like I said, I like that you did two episodes because it gave us time to see how much these women are still themselves when you take them out of the city. But the city, the other city, LA, is so different that they feel completely out of sorts in a city like Los Angeles. Which brings us really, if there's an us, Evan, which brings us really to the, the whole reason I felt confident doing it just like that is when you bring these women into a different environment, they're still themselves. And I knew that I had Sarah Jessica, Cynthia, and Kristen. And I knew that those characters were really strong. And the actors could change depending on what was asked of them and still be those characters. So I thought, let's bring them into a different city. And the city we brought them into was New York in post-pandemic, 2022, post-big, post-Steve, post-single, post-50. So it's like, I knew that with those three characters, I could do it mm. and feel confident and build around them. And, you know, we saw some characters from the SATC universe enter and just like that. I'm thinking about Bitsy, for instance, and Susan Sharon. Are there other characters, and I'm not asking for spoilers here, but just are there other characters that you're interested in potentially revisiting? There are just so many iconic, you know, smaller characters on the show that I think, and just like that opens the door of the possibility of bringing them back. Yeah, I mean, the reality is what I'm trying to do with season two is grow the new characters. Right. It's almost unheard of that you have seven primary characters you're trying to tell in a story, which is why the episodes I think are, I'm so happy they're on streaming because they're a little bit uh, supersized. They're almost the perfect television time to me, which is 43 minutes, 30 is always too little and 50 is too much. It's like you can actually get in there. And with seven characters, you need to get in there. So I'm bringing them back. Of course, we're going to grow Anthony. Anthony's a homegrown surefire. Mario Cantone is Anthony. Bitsy's back. I like to do that a little bit. Uh, Enid's back. Enid Frick. Oh. Candace Bergen is a big deal to come back. 
Um, and then it's always fun to do a little Easter egg. We seem to be doing it with more with like a shoe, that moment. Oh, remember that? You're referencing that. But the, the characters that I'm interested in right now are the new ones and how we can grow them and connect them to the original ones. That's really the journey of the show. How can Carrie be next to Naya? Mm -hmm. It's almost like that the writing room was, you know, those like movies about serial killers where the, they have like a wall of all the suspects <laughs> yeah. and there's red yarn going like this and like this. The writing room is like, how do we connect this one to that one? Where's the connection to that and that and that? And it's like this big yarn yes. thoroughfare of how to get these characters together. Who's killing who this season, Michael? <laughs> Hopefully we're killing it. Yeah, totally. We're killing it with season two, not anyone. My sister just said to me that a woman at her work came into her office and closed the door and says, you know, Tell me. And Eileen goes, what? You know, tell me. Is he killing Aiden? Tell me. You know, is he killing Aiden? Like, I'm now the Terminator. Like, oh, you loved him? I'll kill him. That's my new brand. Uh, you do it one time and suddenly they're like, he's the killer. You kill one iconic can't kill character and then everybody's on the chopping block. <laughs> That's kind of fun. It keeps audiences on their toes. There's nothing I want to do more than piss more fans <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. They're an easily pissed off fan base because I think that's just the nature of fandom today, the intensity of fandom, not just with and just like that, just in general. Uh, there's a protective nature with which fans feel that it's funny because they can go after the people that actually create the show, write the show and say, wait, you can't do this. We know better. We're the fans. The idea that people own the show and the sentence that I found so, I guess, borderline fun was that's not my Miranda. No, it's my Miranda. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. Your Miranda, you did the rewrite on. That's not my Miranda. You somehow rewrote this character in your mind because I guess E, the Sex and the City episodes were on E and they became just so friendly versus anarchy which is what the series on HBO was. I mean, Miranda was basically an anarchist. Why do I have to go out with men? Why do I have to wear this? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do that? I don't want to marry Steve. Steve's like in the hallway. She's get the fuck up. What are you doing? Like with a ring, he's like, that's an ugly ring. Somehow in the time when everybody else married their Steves, they decided the Miranda was happy because they want her to be. Mm. She didn't want to go to Brooklyn. She didn't want to get married. She didn't want a kid. She adapted. But so all of a sudden, when she wasn't a happy homemaker, they're like, that's not my Miranda. I go, oh, oh, oh mm. what? it is Miranda to me. Is it your Miranda? Is it my Miranda? You're the architect here, right? Where you take me, I will go. But the fact of the matter is I'm an architect, but if no one comes into the building, what does it matter? I'm coming into your building. I'm coming into your building. Okay. I'm always coming into your building. You're Michael Patrick King. Like this is, uh, it's, I'm in your building. Okay. We have, we have six names. The two of us have six names. It's nice. And then Sarah Jessica Parker, Sarah Michelle Geller. It's just, it, it adds up. Um, I want to like zero in on like, you know, a, a moment from Sex and the City that you're particularly proud of. And I want to eliminate the really, really famous moments here. I'll give you a, for instance. Okay. I love, love Carrie with Aiden when she says, you have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. And she just keeps repeating it. It's one of those like, quintessentially carry moments that just no other character 
would do it so beautifully, Carrie. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me, Aiden. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. Are there moments, they could be smaller moments, character-driven moments that you just, you look back on, you're like, I just love this scene. I love this beat. I love this line. Yeah, there's, uh, well, speaking of Carrie and Aiden, there's another Carrie and Aiden moment, which is very personal. And it sort of meant something to me when I wrote it is when Aiden crowds in her apartment and the whole episode is about secret single behavior. And what do you do when you're in a, alone versus when someone's in your world? And she comes in and she says to him, it's the very end of the episode. She says, I've never lived with anybody before and this might not make any sense, but when I come in here. I need you to not talk to me for one whole hour. I know that sounds pretty selfish, but it's just what I need. Is that okay? And Aiden goes, mm -hmm. he's quiet okay. and cute in a chair. And she closes the curtains. <laughs> that separate the living from the bedroom. And she sits on the bed for 30 seconds and then goes, So what are you doing out here? The idea that somebody just needs to ask for something and being given permission, that and that's a very decadent push-in on her just sitting there and push-in on Aiden. It's very lush. Voiceover is sometimes when you ask for your needs, you don't need them anymore. But the idea of Carrie asking for a moment is special the carried big moment that i love is when they twist you to moon river this was my parents favorite song they used to put it on before they went out on the town and she has those jeans on which is like a quick hurry up from her house did you hear that two drifters when i was little i thought it was two twisters you know the twist the 60s and, my and I love that moment that's a kind of a magical weird the way they twist and it's sexy and slow and I like that girlfriend's number early early like season one when uh Carrie gets her diaphragm stuck and they don't know what to do yeah and Samantha says go in there and she turns and says, I just had my nails done. Tips a Cosmo and goes in after her. The idea that Samantha reaches in and pulls out her diaphragm, never, ever been seen. Along the way, you know, of course, with Up the Butt, the cab ride with Up the Butt. There's a lot of really special moments. Go get our girl. Miranda saying to Big in Paris, go get our girl, is like, what? Chills to this day. It's like, what? <laughs> but it's a friendship moment. I mean, talk about ride or die, friend. I mean, that is, says everything. It's like, Samantha is your friend and she will go where no friend has gone before. And it's season one. And I love that diaphragm moment because you get so many beats on top of beats because like you said, it's like you get the manicure moment, but then you get the last sip of the Cosmo before she goes in, which it's like, she's not gonna waste a sip. Now, you mentioned uh, Moon River. I'm going to give you four Sex in the City needle drops, and you tell me which is most significant to you, okay? So one, Moon River. Two, Got to Be Real. Three, Hot Child in the City. 
for bad girls. Got to be real. Come on. Got to be real. Carry on the runway. And the best thing about Got to be real, we loved it so much that the credits roll over Carrie in the closet in in boy underwear doing it again. And there's a long pause. And at the very end, she opens the door and looks at the camera. And it's the only time we've ever said since early when Carrie used to talk to the camera, look what we're doing. Look at Sarah Jessica having fun. She dances, dances, dances down that Mm. hallway at the end of the episode after she's fallen. And then she's waiting. I said to her, just wait till the end of the song and stick your head up. And I just think Sarah Jessica's back there just waiting to stick her head out. There's no one back there with her. The camera's just running on an empty closet. So got to be real is it it was pretty significant. You know, writing a show is a, if you have a good staff, it's everything. Because it brings so many points of view. And that was one of the, uh, Stanford's line. Oh my God, she's fashion roadkill. Oh my God, she's fashion roadkill. It was written in the room out of her, it came out of Elisa Zaritsky's mouth, her first couple of weeks there. And I was like, wow. And the rest is history. Let's talk about 2008 and the first film. So I had just moved to New York City. This is 2007. From where? I had moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm from Scranton. Oh, I I did know that indeed. We're Pennsylvania boys. We have three names and we're Pennsylvania boys. Um... And I just moved and I was I was attending NYU and and you all were shooting at the Starbucks in Astor Place. And I was asked to be an extra. I was sadly cut out of the film, um, but I was asked to be an extra. And I remember how transcendent it was to not only see you and SJ, and I, th- I believe Jennifer Hudson was also there filming. Yeah, Jennifer Hudson. But also the hoopla around all of it. So I wanna ask you, you know, it's 2007, three years since the show wrapped. And as you articulated at the beginning of this interview, New York City had changed, right? And I'm wondering what was it like for you shooting that first film and getting to witness what I imagine was an even bigger swell than in the final seasons of the show. And that excitement that was brewing around the idea that this film was even going to exist. Filming Sex in the City, the first movie in its hometown with its patron saints, those four ladies was akin to a celebrity petting zoo. (laughs) I mean, it was come see the llamas. They're walking down the street. Now there were hundreds of people. The New York post was publishing our production schedule every night. So when we would show up, there would be hundreds. When we, we shot the wedding scene in front of the library, hundreds. When we shot them the first time, the four of them walking down Park Avenue South, hundreds of people. Astor Place, hundreds of people. And so polite and reverent, so reverent. Our AD would say on a bullhorn, okay, no cheering and no photographing between action and cut. And then I would say, action, cut. It was, it was a carnival and it was exciting. 
it was another how dare they they're making a movie out of a tv show that's not done and it's certainly not done to this level and then of course the underestimating of what that movie would do box office wise was really thrilling because all the powers that be in the studios who made movies minimalized it as a uh, lady picture. And I remember we were doing back in the day, they were doing, they did DVD sales and you had to project how much, how successful the studio thought it would be. And so I was on my DVD call and they said, um, we think 15 for the opening weekend. And I said, 15 what? And they go 15 million. They said, well, what do you think? And I said, at least 50. And I was laughed off the phone. They just did not think that the audience would show up. And the first weekend was over 60. And they were like, I actually got the call. Well, we missed the ball. Hope we didn't hurt it. It was really fun. What about the first time that you heard the theme song reorchestrated for the film? The Pfizer Brothers Orchestra does this hugely cinematic reinterpretation of the theme that sort of sets the tone that this is going to be the thing that you know and love, but bigger. Yeah, it's it's exciting because not only did we go bigger, we let them hear the original. So it starts with that almost squawk box. And then... The logo explodes, the, everything explodes, the orchestra comes in and it's like thrilling, but we wanted to touch the other one and then do something new. Like we're doing that with end just like that. It's only one voiceover at the end. It used to be 50% voiceover. It's a touch, but it's different. Mm -hmm. Now, talking a little bit from Sex and the City to the comeback, I was thinking, how do I transition between these two shows? And then I thought, hmm, another similarity between the two, the double vomit. <laughs> uh, because, and just like that, season one featured a double vomit, as did the comeback season one. You're the writer of both. Uh, were you conscious of the fact that you were creating another double vomit moment in the canon of television? Um, the first double vomit moment in the comeback was a direct mandate based on reality television. Because when Lisa and I started creating it, people were vomiting left and right on The Amazing Race. I mean, it was just part of the recipe of a reality show. So we knew that it was a contrived event to get Valerie to vomit on television because it would go viral and make her a Jay Leno sensation, which happened. Uh, Carrie and John Tenney vomiting uh, was a story point to me that had to do with how drunk two widowers had to get in order to have fun. And I really just thought the only way to really show that is to have them shit-faced vomit like college kids. And, you know, quite frankly, walking around New York City, going down Bleecker Street, accidentally on a Saturday, Blech! you know, there's always a girl in the curb. Always. There's always, there's always a little cobblestone vomit moment. So it's not like I put them in undersea scuba gear and said, this is happening. I said like people throw up adults in their fifties. Yeah. So, but the interesting thing about that vomit 
you got to hand it to the actors. You got to Lisa Kudrow hated that vomit so much. <laughs> she fought me all the way to the finish line. Sarah Jessica just, all right. And we had a rig. You know, there's another vomit we tried to do that was so on Sex in the City that was so gross. We cut it back in the series. Miranda gets shit faced drunk with a hot guy. And she's so insecure that this hot guy wants her that when she goes to bed with him in the script and we filmed it, she's on top of him and she vomits into his mouth. <laughs> and we filmed it and we had a big tube and Cynthia did it. And she's like, I'm so hot, vomit. And when I saw it, I was like, well, we can't. We can't. It's too far. In the episode, she wakes up the next day coming out of the hallway and she doesn't know where her belt is and she can't get out. But that was it. So Sarah Jessica we and John Tenney, we put hoses attached to their delicate faces and then they turn away and vomit. And it was impossible. We had, after that, we fired them, the worst uh, effects crew ever. They were like these guys from Duck Dynasty. They just kept going, what do you want me to do? It's not working. More vomit. And I'm like, Sarah Jessica's in that little dress and they're putting tape with dirty hands and i was just like finally she said i can do it i can do it myself they gave her a liter of dinty moore and graham crackers or whatever they do and she went but 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 oh, she won't want me saying this but 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 and then please watch the scene again same take one chamber unloads she has dialogue and then the rest of it so that is an actress deciding they can do it without any special effects and they did i was gonna say and she did <laughs> and she can it's miraculous we didn't have to do any vis effects on that are you aware that the the miranda that you're referencing her waking up the next morning the next morning miranda woke up with the worst hangover of her life that's a huge meme uh, of, among many of Sex in the City, but that's one of my favorites that circulates from time to time. You can imagine what the other meme would have been if it had stayed, if it had been allowed to live. <laughs> yeah. It would have been even more. I think there's a couple of memes coming up in, in Just Like That Season 2 that are impossible to not say, oh, that's going to be one. I look in the editing, I go, that's one, that's one, if we're lucky. Well, Michael, I will I will be memeing them without question. Now, speaking of which, uh, you are famously not on social media. And I'm wondering, do you ever have the inclination or the curiosity about social media or it's just not for you? Um, I have a lot in my head already. And I'm not trying to be funny, but I have a lot of stuff going around in my head. And when uh, my partner Craig was like, you, you gotta be kidding, get with it. So he put me on Instagram for a month and a week into it, I liked people I liked less. Mm. I was like, oh, I don't like them now. Oh, that's it. I had a really good friend who did a post that was like this long. And I was like, that's character assassination. You just killed your character for me. So I was like, I'd rather not know this. I'd rather not know how self-involved they are, how unfunny they are. Anything that I need to see gets to me because people make sure I see it. But I also don't want that much active validation, invalidation. And what's interesting, I will tell you, 
is when I did Two Pro Girls, I had a writing room filled with uh, a lot of 30-year-olds. Mm. And they were all on social media. And the show debuted live, like on air at the same time it was online. And we were filming the show while they were watching the things come in of the first episode. And they had no reaction. And I realized it's all equal to them. They, they are 150 likes, 150 hates. It equalizes out to a neutral playing field. They don't react. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm from a generation where I react to not likes. And it's, I don't need to be on, and I've done it, you know, oh, bad comment. Now I have to stay on until I hear of an antidote, good comment, bad comment, bad comment, good comment, good comment. I'm out. It's equalized. <laughs> I'm playing like poker with social media, like right. win, loss, win, loss. And also when you create content that's exposed, when you're in the, in it, you, you kind of need to be in your own imagination and yeah. unplugged. And then it, when you launch it, like we're doing now, that's when it becomes something. But last year, for the first time in my career, I was completely balanced. Can't live without in just like that. Want to kill me. Like I, I was like, oh, it's exciting for the first time to me because not to be very aerial about it, but for the first time in my life, it's very like this. I'm, I'm, I think, oh, okay, at least people are talking about it. And what I think is heartbreaking about where we are in many aspects of entertainment is people really work so hard for years to get something done and then they get it done and then it goes on and it doesn't make a pulse. People can't find it. They don't know it. And it's heartbreaking for me, for all these writers that work so hard and these actors and these directors and they get it right maybe and it's invisible you drive around la and you see like fourth season finale of exclamation point you're like what yeah i never even saw the first season where is it i feel bad for people that and i guess social media helps certainly helps yes but to your point i feel like no one is not talking about and just like that. It's it's a just show that evokes emotion from people very strongly in the most fabulous way. And that's why I think people are so excited to see more of the show and where it will go. But going back to the comeback, so we were talking about the 25th anniversary of Sex in the City and keeping on that numbers game, you have the comeback season one in 2005, the comeback season two, 2014, if I'm mathing the math, that would mean 2023, the comeback season three. Now, <laughs> I know you've got a lot on your plate. This is an unrealistic question, I understand. Valerie Cherish is an oil well that never goes dry for me. Never. It's it, Lisa is so, so Lisa's been in New Zealand working with Taika Watiki. Uh, so she's been preoccupied, but we, every now and then we float something to each other. And it really, she has a very interesting window of what actualizes the march forward. I can have 15 ideas of Valerie and we just keep waiting to see the one that we both go click. I mean, look, she's never going to not be funny and she's never not going to be tragic because she's never going to get younger 
or closer to stardom than she did in seeing red. So it just feels like so interesting where the world is. And I'll tell you, the, the closest we came to something recently was, remember during the beginning of the pandemic or like five weeks in, when all the original sitcoms were doing readings of the pilot, we were like, can you imagine Valerie, tone deaf Valerie, getting together a reading of I'm It with like the original actors or not? But like, cause she's not diligent at all, never having read it. And then getting to what television in that era would have said about women, people of color, and to be on camera saying that, we were like, that's a thing. Valerie reading a Zoom reading of I'm It would have been a thing, but it just went by so fast. Also, just Valerie operating Zoom, not realizing that the camera's still on. There's just so many possibilities. We already did that with her video things, not realizing the camera's on when Mark's taking a shit or not realizing the camera's on when she's yelling at someone about why isn't this camera on? Valerie was already Zooming. Right. Okay, a bit of an esoteric question to like wrap us up with, but I'm wondering, there's something about the comeback that I've always been really intrigued by, which is the fact that despite that it's this, you know, very broad comedy, it, it's quite grounded, right? There's these things when it comes to, I think about her husband, her loving husband, I think about her wardrobe and how gorgeous her costumes were, like the kind of things that like a, a woman would envy to wear. And I think that that is so different than a lot of today's comedy that I'm seeing, which is just very swing for the fence. And it's not to say today's comedy is bad, but I think part of why the comeback always stays on my mind is because the jokes are so much funnier because of how grounded the world that Valerie exists in. I mean, I think for instance about that binder that she has of the takeout restaurants in season one, just those details, those practicalities to the reality of being Valerie. I mean, let's talk about the pilot, the 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 water in in the in the wall. You know, that just this is the shit that happens. It makes everything else so much funnier. I'm wondering what sort of trends you're seeing in comedy, and do you think that like we've gotten a little too absurdist? I know this is like being very general, but I just miss that specificity of a show like The Comeback. I see a tendency towards a comment on a comment. Yes. There's a comment on a comment. It's almost Dada comedy. It's a comedy about comedy. Yeah. It's ironic to the point of ironic. It's a very, uh, it's a very heightened, I don't want to say quotes around everything, but everything seems to have quotes around it. Every character has a quote around it. No one's like, a mean agent. They're a mean agent. And I'm speaking in mass generalizations, but what I'm seeing as the trend or the pulse is something that's a little above reality and almost above believing it. It's like they don't want to believe it. And if they don't believe it, they can't get caught doing it. I've had a couple of interesting experiences with younger directors that when they hand me their cut, they shy away from the laugh. It's almost as if they don't want to spike. They want 
not to look like we're trying to be funny. It's there's a there's a weird not wanting to get caught asking to be liked or asking to think, I hope you think this is good. We did it all for you. Instead, it's like, we're not really doing this. These aren't really real people. This is just us doing a spin on something. And if you don't like it, you know, we're not, we don't even believe it. So am I making sense? You're making so much sense. It's a, it's a protective nature. It, it's sort of like a risk averse in a sense, right? I agree. Because if I don't overly invest in something, then I can't get my heart broken. Or when people criticize it, I don't have to take full ownership of it because I wasn't fully in the water. I think it's also incredibly skilled. I'm not saying that any of these people can't do that. It's like they don't want to get caught asking for you to invest in their work. They don't want to get caught. Right. So instead they're half, maybe, maybe one eighth out mm. and then seven eighths in, but there's always a step out with Valerie and the comeback. She was all in and the show. And I mentioned gravity. I believe there has to be gravity in a show in order for people to really be shocked or laugh. Yeah. Like if somebody dies, they have to die. If somebody says something mean to somebody, there needs to be a chemical reaction from somebody else. You can't just pretend it's not writing, it's real life. And it's written, but it's behaving in the science laws that we know. And the reality of the comeback was real. And as a matter of fact, when we were doing the episode when Greg Mentola directed it, when Valerie goes to the writer's hut with cookies at night and they're doing like pretending that they're having sex with her and they have a red a hoodie on and they're all making fun of her and she catches them and they freak out inside. I actually turned to the director and said, this is a documentary. I'm doing a documentary about what I know about television writing and writers and actors. So I always believed it was a documentary. It was real. And then Lisa played everything as though it was absolutely real. Sarah Jessica plays everything as though it's real. All the actors play stuff as though it's real. And then, you know, the writing lifts sometimes into the place where you then say, here are my top five moments. But it reflects reality. And I think if there's any reason people are still watching Carrie Miranda and Charlotte, it's because they still feel they're real somewhere because they've gone from 34 to 56 with them or seven. Oh, Michael, in like the realest way, I miss Valerie. Like I, she's on my mind. She's someone that I think about in a strangely specific way. I, there are situations where I become Valerie for a moment. And when I react to a situation in life, I, I, she, she, comes inside of me or not but rather you know what I mean I do as a matter of fact wait I'll tell you something about missing Valerie please when Lisa and I wrote the second uh season we were in a room all all day long writing and she would do Valerie and I would write it and we would write Valerie and we'd figure out the stories and she would hit the template and we'd go oh my god more of that and it was that Lisa doing Valerie 
And then we hadn't seen Valerie since season one, which is nine years earlier. So we had to do, we wanted to do a hair and makeup test to see Valerie now. And we also were concerned, like, had Valerie aged? What do we have to write about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we were on a stage, Lisa was in hair and makeup. And I turn around and Valerie's coming at me. And I got shy. It was, I had just been in a room for three months with Lisa doing Valerie, but all of a sudden I saw Valerie and it's like from inside it's lit up and it was Valerie and I missed her. Even though I had been with Lisa writing her, there's a metamorphosis that happens when she becomes Valerie, not to get very you know, spiritual about it, but there's like another entity that enters her. Yeah. And it was thrilling and it took my breath away. I have chills. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Before I let you go, my last question, just because, you know, you've told so many stories. I mean, even that story just now, but even thinking about the Miranda, the, the possibility that she was going to vomit into that guy's mouth. You've got a lot of stories in you. Are we ever getting the MPK memoir? Oh, I don't know. Probably. It's been a great adventure. We've gone from a little tiny show on what was a fights channel, HBO, that was like fights and stand up, and to filming and being told we had to leave Dubai because the Sheik Shake didn't want the Sheik Shake didn't want us filming there. And he was upset that these characters even existed to getting on a desert thing and going to Abu Dhabi because they wouldn't let us film. It's been a very big journey. And it's really thrilling to still be working with some people that have been there all along. And it's it's been an evolution of, uh, it's my sex life. It's been a very big journey. And, there's, I, and I'm Irish and I love to tell stories. So who knows? Well- I will be purchasing it once it is made available. Michael, thank you so very much. Hey, look, this is a pleasure. I'm talking about myself at 10 in the morning. <laughs> what could be better, you know? And I'm going to see you soon. Please be blonde when I see you. I will consistently be blonde for you. All right. Thanks, Evan. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E 
D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.